Welcome everybody one more time to City Life tonight. Y'all can make some noise. And I want to thank you, especially if you're a visitor tonight, first, second, third time, sixth time, whatever, for spending Independence Day weekend with us. Because there's a lot you could be celebrating, there's a lot you could be doing, but like we saw in worship, the one thing we celebrate above all else is the freedom we have in Christ, right? Can I get an amen? amen. All right, but there are some things I celebrate on Independence Day weekend and some traditions that I have that maybe aren't traditional. Like I like to celebrate on July 4th a freedom from calories, right? Like I'm about to be... 30, right, and I realize my metabolism is probably going to drop. I might start have to actually counting, start counting calories, right? But on July 4th, if I want to pull a Joey Chestnut and eat 61, 62 hot dogs, however many he ate yesterday, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to still feel good about myself because I live in America. Can I get an amen? Another tradition Steph and I like to do at the White House is have people over and watch Independence Day. Does anybody else do this? Come on, Independence Day, it's a classic Right, you start watching that, you can start getting nostalgic about the 90s. Like, I just want to pull out all my flannel shirts from my closet and line them up for Monday through Friday. Because it doesn't matter if they're male or female, young or old in that movie, they're all rocking flannel. They also, it makes me want to go find Fruitopia. You might have to go to, like, I don't know where to find some, but there's Fruitopia in the movie. I start salivating because I used to drink that all the time in high school. And then lastly, we were watching it yesterday, and it got me thinking. You're watching as these alien ships settle in over the cities, and of course, everybody's freaking out, as we all would. And people are throwing stuff out of their second-story windows to other people who are throwing it on top of their cars. And they're getting out of there as fast as possible. And it got me thinking, if I had to get out of my house in 30 seconds, two minutes, what would I grab? What's priceless to me? What's precious? What's irreplaceable? What would I be throwing out the window to Steph so that she could throw in the car before we got out of there? And so I pose that question to you. If, if you had to get out of your house in 30 seconds to a minute, what are those priceless, precious, irreplaceable things that you would grab and take with you? A box of Cheez-Its. <laughs> See, that helped all y'all. You set the bar low, y'all can go. <laughs> what would you guys take with you? Jenna. Um, like birth certificate, social security. You smart. All the, all the papers you need in life. I see a hand back here. Your Bible? Yeah, probably my Bible my mom gave me that's all marked up that I've read through again and again. It's got all my notes in it. I'll probably grab that. I made a little scrapbook when Steph and I got married that I proposed with, probably grabbed that. We don't look at it, but, you know, we might want to in 20 years or whatever. But <laughs> those are things that I would grab, right? Go ahead. Grab your mom. Absolutely. Don't want to, well, yeah. Maybe some of you would want to leave family members, but we'll have ministry later for that. Steph. A gun. <laughs> Touche. Yo. <laughs> Nathaniel. Your iPad, right? Yeah, probably grab my laptop with all, everything I've ever done in life that's saved on it, maybe my external hard drive, but there's some stuff you would grab, right? And in Independence Day, we've been talking about these movies that highlight rescues, right? Because we're talking about Jesus' rescue of us. And I don't know, I wasn't here that week when Pastor Fred went through that list. And I, I podcasted, I don't know how anybody didn't bring up Independence Day. You've got like, oh, we did? All right, cool. The neurotic... <laughs> character and, and Will Smith's bombastic character going out there and saving the world. Like even yesterday on Twitter and Instagram, you got people like saying never forget, right, 7496 when Will Smith and them saved the world. So it, it should have been on the list, but I'm not actually pulling from that tonight. But another movie that wasn't on the list that I want to pull from tonight is a little different, but it's Gran Torino. Right, like you talk about prized possessions, this movie is named after his prized possession, his Gran Torino. And it stars the Clint Eastwood, 
I can say that amongst us. If I was on a Wednesday night with all the youth, I might have to explain who Clint Eastwood is. But you guys know, right? He was the guy who took the baton from John Wayne as the manliest man in Hollywood, right? In his prime, he could have took Chuck Norris, given him a run for his money in terms of masculinity, right? He is the Clint Eastwood. I think it was the fourth movie he directed. He starred in it. And the character he is is Walt Kowalski. And he's famous for four words in this movie, get off my lawn, right? And it's not your grandmother's version of get off my lawn because one, Clint Eastwood, I, I bet he inspired, I don't know for sure, but I'll put money on, he inspired the new Batman voice, right? Where Christian Bale's just, everything he says is like gravelly. That's how Chris, Clint Eastwood talks all the time. Clint Eastwood all the time just gravelly, you know, get off my lawn, right? And the get off my lawn in this movie, again, it's not your grandmother's get off my lawn because he's a Korean War veteran. And with that get off my lawn is his M1 assault rifle. And when the bullets don't fly, often four-letter words and racial slurs do. Because as we see in this movie, Clint Eastwood, his character Walt, is in need of rescue. Right? You look at him in this movie and he is a self-centered, selfish racist who can't get along with his own family, who can't get along with neighbors, can't get along with the priest that's reaching out to him. He can't get along with anybody. And it's not just that, but he's hurting, and he's alone. And how ironic in this movie that an Asian family moves next door to this Korean War veteran. And it's through those interactions, sometimes awkward, but always moving towards his rescue, that he becomes self-aware of the fact he needs a rescue. See, Pastor Fred has coined this phrase with this series that says, When my situation is desperate, my efforts are failing, and urgency surrounds me, I need to be rescued. But sometimes we're more like Walt, if we're honest. Sometimes when I was a sinner, when I was lost, I didn't always feel desperate. I didn't always feel like my efforts were failing. But the truth of the matter was that there was an urgency that surrounded me. Even before I realized it, that I was a sinner and was broken, Jesus already died for me, right? When I was still a sinner, Jesus went to the cross. And, and sometimes you're not feeling like your efforts are failing. You're not feeling desperate. But guess what? Those are just symptoms of your brokenness. Even when you don't have the symptoms, we're still broken and we all still needed to be rescued, right? It's how Pastor Fred has been saying Jesus' urgency, urgency that he showed when he went from the throne room of heaven, became a servant, made himself nothing, emptied himself, and was obedient to the cross, right? That same kind of urgency surrounds us and the salvation of those we pass every day in our rescue mandate. But tonight I want to look at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So if you got your Bible, if you've got an iPhone, you can swipe there, you can turn there. I'm going to put some of it up on the screen. But it's one of Jesus' most dramatic rescues in his earthly ministry. When you look at it, when you read the story, you'll see why. But it's Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And it says, So they arrived, they being Jesus and the disciples, at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. 
Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crown suit gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Come on, before I go any further, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that just like this man, we are called to tell others of what you've done for us. Lord God, and I thank you that your word tells us of exactly what you've done and exactly how you have called us, Lord God. I thank you that you have given us your word to guide us and direct us in truth. Lord God, so would you do that tonight? Lord God, would you let us leave tonight with a renewed passion and a new perspective, Lord God, on the rescue mandate that you've given us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So when you read through the Gospels, and you read this passage, you begin to realize that this is easily one of the most troubled people that Jesus comes across in his earthly ministry. He's one of those people you look at, and you might know some people like this, where you say, if God can save him, he can save anybody, right? We like to call people out of their mind. This guy was really out of his mind. He was crazy, right? Couldn't be subdued. You'd chain him, he'd break the chains. Run around naked in a cemetery, right, amongst the tombs. This is the guy who runs to meet Jesus. Now, Steph here... My wife, she doesn't like watching horror movies. She doesn't even watch the horror commercials. We were watching TV in the evening, and a, and a, a preview will come on, and as soon as she realizes, oh, this is a horror movie, right? This is her. And she'll do that for 30 seconds or however long until I, gently, because I don't want to startle her, right, tap her on the shoulder and say, hey, the commercial's over, as you were, right? Because I understand this, and because I'm a good husband, you know, I'll wake her up when the commercial's over. So if this was a scene, even in a movie about Jesus, there's a chance that Steph might not watch it. She might sit there with her, her hands over her ears and her eyes closed because it's horrific. How this man's been tormented by demons, how he's demon-possessed. And let me tell you, if I was a disciple on this boat as they approached the shore and this man came running, I might pick up a rock, whatever's closest to me, and like try to shoo him away like a dog. Like, hey, Jesus, can we push off? Maybe go find another shore to land on, right? But Jesus sees this man and he sees an opportunity for rescue, right? And we've talked in this series, Pastor Fred has set it up, where there's a rescue mandate, speaking to our mandate as a church, to go on a rescue mission, to go reach the world, right? And then the rescue invitation that each one of us has to experience God's grace. And when you look at this plot in Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, there's two goes in that passage that I want to look at and tie into each, each of these. The rescue mandate and the rescue invitation. And I want to start tonight with the rescue mandate. And the goal that we'll look at for this is in verse 19, where Jesus says to the man, go home. And it's kind of mind-boggling. It's kind of head-scratching. Because if you've grown up in the church, you, un you understand this idea of discipleship, 
Some people define it a little different. Some people walk it out as church is different. But it's this idea of taking somebody who's just been delivered, just begins following Christ, and getting them to the point where they're deeply rooted in the word and in scripture and in prayer and in fellowship and all the things that we might call pathways here at City Life to where they're bearing fruit as a follower of Jesus. Right? And you could do that different ways through classes that teach on the Bible, through service trips like the trip to Nysum, the trips we're taking to the Dominican Republic. You can do it through uh, fellowship, life groups, all these different ways. But one aspect of discipleship that you can't get away from no matter how hard you try when you read the Bible is making disciples. A major part of the discipleship process, a major part of our faith, and a major part of following Jesus is that we reach people. A major part of accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ is you assist in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, if you look at this story, again, it's one of the most powerful testimonies of Jesus' power, his grace, and his mercy. Right? And this guy's begging Jesus to go with him. Right? It's a powerful testimony. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, yeah, roll with me. Because a lot of times with miracles, he might say, look, don't say this, anything about this to anybody. But Jesus to this man says, well, go and share it. You know, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, look at this man I delivered from a legion of demons, right? And I'd bring him with me. But it looks like Jesus hits him with one of those Jesus jukes, right? Like a stiff arm as he's getting onto the boat. Because he says, no, go home. And again, as somebody that is raised in the church, has been raised in the church, you might ask, well, isn't he dropping the ball on the discipleship process here? Shouldn't he say, well, let me teach you about the Old Testament. Let me teach you about these prophecies and how they point to me. Shouldn't he be like, look, I got a 12-man life group. You should come make it 13, right? Maybe you should say, look, there's a Starbucks around the corner. I'll meet you there next Tuesday so we can go over what you just experienced. You know, just maybe we'll go on a weekend retreat across the lake. I'll bring you back on Monday, right? Like, isn't he dropping the ball here? And I'm not saying that Jesus is knocking or depreciating those things. Because, again, you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the ministry of Jesus, community, the church, accountability, being surrounded by believers. Obviously, those are important. Jesus himself surrounded himself with an inner circle and disciples. But he is noting and appreciating the importance of ministry. He tells this man to go reach because disciples make disciples. When you're found and truly found by God, you turn around and start to find other people that need the same grace. Again, a big part of accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ fully is assisting the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we talk about here at City Life about 12 pathways, and that's kind of what we point to as if you're walking in these 12 pathways, you'll grow and you'll be discipled. And there's so many in there. There's, there's stewardship, there's gathering, there's generosity, there's rest, there's fasting. But, you know, four big ones that we like would be prayer, the word, worship, and gathering. Because you can kind of do that and still be comfortable and then go home and do you. But some of these other ones like fasting, right, generosity, reaching, which means evangelism and going out and making disciples. Some of those actually stretch us, so we kind of throw them in the back of the boat and just continue on our way. Because it's so easy in our culture to have a, a, a me-centered faith, right? Where, where finding Jesus and discipleship is about pushing off in a boat with Jesus, and it's me and Jesus, and I can pray and worship, and we can push off on that shore where those weird, neurotic, sometimes terrifying people are, and we can just go about life, right, until I go to heaven. But again, you can't get away from this idea of reaching when you read the word. In Gran Torino, Walt, Clint Eastwood's character, his world was all about himself, sitting on his porch with his dog, his Gran Torino in the driveway, his M1, and a PBR, right, and himself. That was his life. But we know as Christians, if our faith 
is inward focused, then it's out of focus. If our faith is only focused on this building or, or, or me and Jesus, then it's out of focus. Because as we've been preaching for weeks now, we've got a rescue mandate to go out into the world. And if you truly accepted that mandate, it won't be enough like Walt to chill on your porch and kind of growl about it like he did. Or let's be real, your digital front porch on Facebook and just growl about the world. You've got a rescue mandate to go do something about it. But Walt, he's emotionally and psychologically rescued by his neighbors, as bitterness and resentment is replaced by understanding and acceptance of those that are different than him. He learns how to love, and he learns that true valor is selfless. Ultimately, he ends up pulling off the biggest rescue at the end of the movie when he dedicates his life to ridding the neighborhood to the gang that had poisoned it. And we, like Walt, were rescued, but it doesn't stop there. There's an end in mind that involves the rescue of others. See, Jesus' go home speaks to that end. He tells this man, go home. But <laughs> there's like a series of memes, right? That's the pictures with the, the text on it that are, are joking things. And, and, and you might see an object like uh, I saw a trampoline and some power lines. And they're like, trampoline, go home, right? Because it's ludicrous. It's, it's not serving its purpose. And maybe you might joke with a friend who's just being ludicrous, making no sense. Man, go home, right? It's almost like an insult. So just, hey, go home, get out of here. And in our culture, it's become increasingly global. I can tell you this week I started following an astronaut who's been tweeting pictures of like photos of the sunrise over China. It's sweet. He had like a Vine video of, of flashes of lightning over Texas. It just makes you realize how small we really are and what a big universe and big world we're a part of. And honestly how beautiful it is as well. But you can begin to reflect on, man, this is a big world, right? You can't even see me from up in that space station. But then technology and efficient travel gives us this promise, this exciting promise that we can escape. We can go see the world. And even if that's not in our means, we can escape through Twitter and Facebook to where a lot of times we're not truly present. We're escaped somewhere else where, when we're here physically. But God's called us to more than that. See, Steph loves maps. I've got a map of Newport News in my office. And Steph got this map where I think it's you scratch off the nations you've been to, right? If you were to look at mine, you would think I had an ankle bracelet on and was like in some kind of trouble with the government where I can't leave the Americas, right? But that's not the case with everybody, especially here at City Life. Here at City Life, I feel like we send out another family every other week to a different state or a different nation, right? It's part of that reason is because we have the honor here of serving so many military families who serve us. And I would be remiss on July 4th if I didn't say from the pulpit, thank you. Thank you for all you do, right? Yeah, give it up for them. We'll always love, we'll always support, and we'll always serve our military. And we will always support financially with, and with prayers missionaries that are overseas and all over the world. But what would happen if everybody in this sanctuary had that perspective, that eventually I'm going to leave, right? What would happen to Hampton Roads? What would happen to Newport News and Williamsburg? Right, talking to students on Wednesday nights, I realize that a couple years from now, they might be off in another city. They might be off in different states. They might go study abroad. They might go into the military and go all over the world. But talking to adults here tonight, I can say that a majority of us, we're not going to be called by God to go leave the nation. Right? A majority of us, this is our final frontier. Let's be real. Here or somewhere within an hour or 30-minute radius, for a lot of us, that's going to be our story. So it would be a tragic mistake to assume based on the fact you're not leaving to think that you're not sent. 
See, in this story with this man where he's reaching, we realize that our call to go isn't always a call to leave. See, God calls this man to go home. Our go sometimes points us to take Christ to our city, to our schools, to our workplace. We talk all the time at RC about how you don't just attend a high school. You don't just attend a middle school. You serve a sovereign God. You're called to that school, right? You don't just play on a sports team. You serve a sovereign God. You were called to be a light on that sports team, right? As adults, we don't just clock in at work. We serve a sovereign God. We're called to be a light in that workplace. You know, we don't just live in Newport News. We serve a sovereign God. We're called to reach this area, to reach the seven cities, right? We're called. Jesus gives this man a purpose and a mission and a calling in staying behind. And he recognizes it as such. His sacred obligation, his divine duty, and his reasonable service. And notice he doesn't see it as a campaign or a a gimmick where when he's done he can check it off and then say he's done with reaching and evangelism. But no, it's his lifelong reasonable service, his sacred duty. See, sometimes the word Jesus puts after go when he's calling us is home. And home is, it can be fun, and home is where the heart is, right? But home can also be where we make our biggest mistakes, where people know who we really are, right? Where sometimes we got dirty laundry, literally and spiritually, right? We sometimes we like to sweep stuff under the rug, literally and spiritually. And when you look at Jesus, even Jesus, God in the flesh, couldn't get respect in his hometown. You go to the very next chapter in Mark 6, he goes to Nazareth to preach and teach, and and they would not honor him because they didn't see Jesus the Messiah. They saw Jesus the carpenter, right? This is Mary and Joseph's son. Who is this guy talking to us like this? And maybe that's us going to our workplace or, or being amongst people that have known us for years. They see us and they see a position, or they see us and they see our history. They see us and they see a title, whether it's high or it's low, whether it's big or small. But sometimes with this It's easier to think, well, I'll just escape to greener pastures, right? You know, I'll get my opportunity to minister somewhere else. Because, again, the grass is always greener. I had a house party at my house like two weeks ago now. David Lassie was there, right? There were dozens upon dozens of of youth there just going nuts. We were having fun. But uh, every time I have people over, if you walk out of my slider doors in the back of our kitchen to to the fire pit in the back, the grass is lush. Let me tell you, it's not as nice as like Augusta National. feels like you're walking on carpet. And people always comment like, what do you do to your grass to make it like this? And I haven't done anything. And literally it was dark out that night, so it's good. Because if you look 10 feet to the right or 10 feet to the left, there's weeds everywhere, right? My front yard is like 70% weeds. And I'm so thankful that weeds are green, so from far away it still looks normal, right? But I'm never going to say to anybody walking through my front yard, get off my lawn, right? I'm going to be like, yo, could you maybe grind your heel a little bit, take some harder steps, you'll kill some weeds on your way in. Thank you. Welcome, right? Come on in. That would be me. Because to me, I see the neighbors two doors over, and they always get their grass treated. It always looks amazing. I'm like, oh, the grass is greener over there. But again, Jesus couldn't get any respect at home. But you look at the geography of his ministry, the circle that he did around Nazareth as he stopped town after town, you realize that he didn't give up on home, that he had a strategy for his hometown, that he was going to surround those unresponsive knuckleheads with so much mercy and so much grace and transformation in the cities around them that no matter where they turned, they were going to see the grace of Jesus Christ. He didn't give up on his hometown. He actually had a strategy for it, even though it was tough and it wasn't easy. But again, sometimes it's more appealing to go look over the horizon instead of the mess that's in front of us. But again, 
Jesus' call to go isn't always a call to leave. And this isn't to talk down missions by any means. And this isn't even to talk down taking a vacation, if you can, in Europe or Fiji. Just when you guys get to that point, remember my name, remember my number, and call me, right? But this is not to talk any of that down. But it's the point to and emphasize what Jesus told us about our rescue mandate. The strategy he gave his disciples. Because we get the Great Commission where it says go out into all nations, right, making disciples. But in Acts 1.8, he gives them their strategy. He says this, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. And then read the list. It says in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What he lists first is their city, Jerusalem. Home takes priority. And again, this isn't to say that nobody's going to be sent out to, on rescue missions as missionaries, but I would say, and I would argue that God probably very rarely sends people out on rescue missions around the world if they're not already living with this rescue perspective at home, in their Jerusalem, in their Decapolis, which is the word in this passage for ten cities. Jesus tells this man to go home and tell his story, and that's exactly what he does. And he doesn't stop with his family. He doesn't stop with his friends. He goes throughout all ten cities of this region. Again, the word Decapolis might be in your Bible. That means ten cities. It's like he went on a preaching tour and he wasn't even booked. He just go going city to city, right? And I think sometimes when it comes to evangelism and what we like to call divine appointments, we want God to like roll out the red carpet. We want God to write this divine appointment down in our, in our day planner and then underline it and then underline it again and then highlight it when God's already told us to go. And it starts in Jerusalem. It starts in your Decapolis. It starts in your home, right? And again, this is an ordinary guy. Jesus didn't take him into some class. He didn't give him a title. There was no ordination ceremony. But an ordinary man who embraced God's passion and God's perspective for the towns around him changed ten cities. And I love that because we live in seven cities, right? That's what we call this area. And how much more can one church full of hundreds of people with the same passion and the same perspective, come on, change the region we live in? But are we looking at evangelism and this, this 10 for 10 challenge and handing out reach cards? Is it, is it something that we're just going to do and then check it off or is it sparking a lifestyle? Let me tell you, the more you do it, it's like contagious. You want to see if you can do better the next week. I didn't get to 10 this week. I'm going to do like 20 next week to make up for it. I know, right? Repentance right here. I got one left in my back pocket. I almost tried to give it away at a, a 7-Eleven, but it was like 4 I was like, I'm going to wait for somebody to walk through the door. Stood there for like two minutes. I got to get to church. <laughs> Lord, I repent. But this was an ordinary man who changed 10 cities. How much more can city life change seven? Come on, if we embrace that passion and that perspective. There's a great A.W. Tozer quote that says, when the eyes of the soul looking out meet the eyes of God looking in, heaven has begun right here on earth. We talk about heaven now, we talk about heaven forever. When our eyes looking out meet God's eyes looking in at us, at our city, at our region, come on, heaven comes to earth. But some of us maybe have never met that grace-filled gaze for ourselves. That's why we talk every week during this series about the rescue invitation. And I want to hit on that as we close. This rescue invitation we see in Mark 5. But the go that I want to point to in this passage is when the people tell Jesus, go away. Which is crazy to me. Again, this is another head scratcher. This is another plot twist. Where if I was somebody, right, this man is possessed by demons. He's terrifying. He can't be restrained. You can never send your kids to the beach without fear of this dude just terrorizing him, right? Jesus delivered them of this man by delivering the man, right? Right? I would be like, yo, Jesus, can you come 
to dinner, especially if I was a parent. I'd be like, I've been laying my hands on my son for a while now. Could you lay hands on him and deliver him from just all his ratchetness, right? But these people tell Jesus, go away. And it's kind of mind-blowing. But before we get to their perspective, I want to look at the perspective of the demon-possessed man in verse 7, where he says, with a shriek, I love that, I don't know if he went, ah! or what, but he says, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. In other translations, it says, don't torment me, don't give me a hard time. And we know that these are the demonic spirits speaking, but this is the same enemy that feeds us lies and feeds so many people lies that, that God comes to interfere, that God comes to intrude, to torture, to torment, or to give you a hard time. The enemy loves for us to think of God as some strict taskmaster who has all these rules and commands so that at the end of time he can look at our list of sins and say, hey, what are you going to do about this, right? And judge us. That he comes to restrict us, that his commands are burdensome, that they're here to prohibit us. And if you look at the Bible, there's no getting around it. We got the Ten Commandments. If you've read the book of Leviticus, you know list after list of don't do this, don't do that, right? But where the, the enemy would love for us to think that all these thou shalt nots are to prohibit us, we know that they're guiding us to God's promises. We know that they're guiding us to his provision. We've been in a series called Free at RC leading up to July 4th talking about freedom and how there are free acts that you can do freely that will rob you of freedom, right? You can go and pursue the lust of your flesh, but you will be bound by pornography. You'll be bound by the lust of your flesh. You can go pursue freely alcohol and substance abuse, but you will find yourself addicted and robbed of freedoms. So you can freely pursue passions that rob you of freedom. And see, when you've been enslaved, when you've been imprisoned for so long, sometimes you don't know how to act when you've been let free. You can look at statistics, literally, of people that have been let out of prison after being in prison for years, and within months they've acted up and gone back to prison because they don't know how to act. Suicide rates of people that have been let out of prison that don't know how to acclimate to life outside of prison, and they give up. See, God's commands are given to us because we were once slave to sin, and he's freed us, and he's showing us how to live free. His boundaries are a blessing. You know, my, back, my backyard, again, has this nice grass, but my neighbor has a big pit bull. And again, anybody that was at the house party can attest to that. I'll be, like, weed whacking that fence over there, and I'll, like, close my eyes, and I know there's, like, a 30-second window where somewhere in this 30 seconds that pit bull is going to come just rushing at the fence, barking, scaring the life out of me. This is a big pit bull. And if that fence wasn't there, I would never be able to freely enjoy my backyard. We talk about it at RC, how God's boundaries are a blessing because what you prize, you will protect. And you can say that about marriage. Come on, boundaries you put on your marriage with relationships with people the opposite gender, they aren't a burden because what you prize, you'll protect. You can apply this to purity. Boundaries with your purity aren't a burden because what you prize, you protect. You can apply it to your freedom. Boundaries on your freedom aren't a burden because what you prize, you protect. I prize and I treasure the freedom that Jesus has given me from sin, right? And the boundaries he's given me, I can accept and run in. I love David in Psalm 119. I don't know what verse, but he says, I run on the path of your commands. Why? Because he'd been set free and God's commands showed him where to run. But again, it doesn't come to restrict you. It releases you to live in freedom, right? Jesus didn't come to interfere, to intrude, to torment or to torture. He came to give him blessings that didn't burden him but that guided him to his blessings. Excuse me, he didn't give him boundaries to burden him, but to direct him to the blessings that he had for him. But the reality is, even with all this truth, 
Sometimes what's familiar is preferable to the freedom that Christ offers. I'm a creature of habit. I can attest to this in life in general. But sometimes what's familiar seems preferable to God's promises. You look at Gran Torino, and it's named after his Gran Torino because that is like a symbol of him clinging to the past, him clinging to what once was stable. He had so little to put his faith in that this car became a symbol of him just clinging to his past. He washed that thing, detailed that thing every week. But eventually, the, the plot thickens and he gets intruded upon by his neighbor Tao, who goes to steal the car as part of like gangs, peer pressure as initiation. And through all that, they become intertwined. That his family, Tao's family and Walt, and through all that again, this intrusion as Walt would see it, we see that he was pulled out of his comfort zone and that's eventually what saved him. See, sometimes we can get so comfortable, right, that God will intrude upon us or what we might see as an intrusion when really he's delivering us. I think it's Mark Batterson who said, uh, if, you're, if you reach a certain comfort level, you should get uncomfortable. I just butchered the quote, but it's something along those lines. You know, we, we should be welcoming invitations such as 10 for 10, where, you know what, it might take you out of your comfort zone, but God's growing you and delivering you in that. But what's nuts is the people of this region, right, they see Jesus and him coming there as an intrusion rather than an invitation to transformation and life, Right? Ironically, again, this is like a scene out of a horror movie, but the very first mention of fear is after the demons are already out of the picture. The first mention of fear is, is when the people see this man and they realize not only are the demons out of the picture, their pigs are out of the picture. Because these weren't Jews or Israelites that, that couldn't eat pig. These were some bacon-loving Gentiles, right? And not only that, they love bacon, so they would take care of herds of pigs. Yeah, all the bacon-loving Gentiles in here just said amen under their breath, right? But then all the vegans and vegetarians were like, yeah, he sent the demons into the pigs. That's why I don't eat them, right? That's not me. I like bacon. But let me tell you, if I see an item on a, or an entree on a menu that has bacon on it, chances go up by like 100% that I'm going to order the said thing. But if there was an entree that was just like plate of bacon, I'm not going to order that. Because bacon, let's be real, it's not really that filling. I probably have to have three of those plates of bacon, and by then I'm working on a heart attack. And I'd have to drink like three gallons of water just to wash it all down. Because bacon's a side. It's a frill. It enhances the meal, but we're not meant to eat a full plate of it. And there's so many pleasures in life that are the same way. We're meant to enjoy them. But God wants to give us life, and life to the fullest in him. Now, in that life to the fullest, there are pleasures but it's when you take those frills and you try to make it a feast that you realize it's not going to fill me, right? And you can hold on to bacon when God's trying to give you a sirloin spiritually. You can hold on to pigs when God's trying to give you purpose. And like Walt, you can cling to Grand Torino's, things of your past, things that you aren't willing to let go of. Again, the people of the town, they were cool with the change in the demon-possessed man. But once it dealt with and impacted and had the potential to change their lives, they got scared. That's when fear is mentioned. Because with Jesus comes change. And again, sometimes what you're used to, the routine is preferable to change. Because there's fears that come. Fears of being stretched. Fears of discomfort. Fears of unfamiliarity. Fears of giving up what you are familiar with and know so well for the promises that God gives us. But these are the fears that act like the riptide or the current at the ocean that hold us back from the destiny that God has for us. Again, what's familiar often feels preferable to God's promise, but you can replace that fear with faith. Come on, as the worship team comes up, I just want to invite the worship team up. I want to close with this 
rescue invitation. Because God's inviting you tonight to replace lies the enemy has fed you with life that he, only he can give you. Because, again, the question I want to close with tonight is, is what's your pig? What's your Gran Torino? What's the symbol of your past or your identity that you've had so much trouble giving up, but Jesus would say, tonight I want you to lay that down. I want you to have what's better. Come on, like David exhorted at worship. So often we can cling to things when God has something better for us, right? He wants to, to change us so that we can glorify him. And one of the biggest moments in the movie Gran Torino is when Walt has become kind of friends with Tao at this point, and Tao's going to go on a date, and Walt says, hey, you can borrow my car. That's a huge moment in this movie. Sounds, sounds small, but it's a huge moment because this is symbolic of him letting go of some stuff. Letting go of really racism. Letting go of, uh, of fears of the next generation. Letting go of all this stuff that had plagued him. And it's just a sign that, hey, this guy's being healed through this relationship with this kid. And eventually, as he would, again, dedicate his life to Tao, to rid the town of gangs, eventually he would give him his car. He would just give it up. And it's, again, a symbol of him saying, I wanted to let go of this because I found something better. Relationship with people. Loving people. And God would say tonight, what's your Gran Torino? What's the thing that you need to lay down so that you can pick up something better that I'm offering? Don't let what's, what's familiar seem preferable, right? God has something better. So maybe it's your dreams. Give it to Jesus. Maybe it's your shame from past mistakes. Give it to Jesus. Maybe it's issues with identity. Give it to Jesus. Issues forgiving people. Give it to Jesus. Maybe it's your entire life. Come on, give it to Jesus. He doesn't come to restrict. He comes to release you to walk in freedom. He doesn't come as an authoritarian with a gavel to point at your sin. He comes and extends grace and points to the cross. Come on, so if we could stand here tonight, come on, I want to extend a rescue invitation. I responded to my rescue invitation in October of 2005, <laughs> and I've never been the same since. So come on, if everybody could bow your heads and close your eyes. Come on, again, God is asking us to give up misconceptions and lies that the enemy has fed us about who he is and what he wants to do, and he wants to extend grace. <laughs> he wants to extend new life. Life and life abundant. And yes, it comes with boundaries, but it's protecting the freedom that he gives us. And if you want to walk in that freedom, if you want to accept that grace tonight, if you want to accept God tonight, then I would just ask with every head bowed and every eye closed that you where you're at would raise your hand. Because God is here, and like David said earlier, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So come on, if that's you tonight, where you're at, just lift your hand up. Because we want to pray. Thank you, God. Thank you. But I also, you can put your hands down. I also want to challenge everybody else. <laughs> there's not only a rescue invitation, but like we've been talking about, there's a rescue mandate. We're not just called to be rescued, but we're called to rescue others. And sometimes the go <laughs> that God, Jesus, gives us again is to go home. To go home tonight to your workplace, to your school, to your family, and be a light and to reach people for Jesus Christ. But that can be intimidating. If you don't have the right perspective or the passion, and you can feel like you're not equipped. But if you would say tonight, I want a renewed passion for my family, for those family members I prayed for for years, right? I want a renewed passion. <laughs> Restore to me the joy of my salvation, God. And Lord, help me to pray for that for my family members. 
Maybe you need a restored passion for the sports team you've been on or, 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 or the workplace you're in where you feel like you've just washed your hands and you said, well, maybe he'll give me another mission field in a couple years. But if that's you and you want renewed passion or you want a renewed perspective where you've just been, like I can sometimes be a point A to point B person where I'm just out to, to do what I need to do, but God wants to open our eyes to his perspective. So we're going to go back into the worship set. But if you raised your hand about wanting to receive the grace, come on, that God wants to extend to us. I saw hands, then I encourage you as we go back into worship to come up to this altar, to maybe come to the side where we've got people that want to pray with you. And if you're one of those people that also says, I want a renewed passion and I want a renewed perspective to walk out the rescue mandate that God's given me, then come on, the altar's open. And again, there's people that want to pray. Well, let's get back into worship.
this series. It's been John 9, verse 4. It says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us 